0: Good morning. It is really good to be here with you this morning. I just uh, thank you for this opportunity. My name is Steve Den Hartog, and I am not a pastor here or on staff here at Grace, but we've been members here for probably about 10 years or so now already. So my wife Leanne and I uh, operate the nonprofit Christian bookstore and book ministry on McPherson Drive here in Laredo. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to be moving to our new location as well, coming up here, hopefully within the next month or two, over to Casa Verde Road. So we're looking forward to that. But in the meantime, I'm I'm, uh, excited to be here and look forward to opening up God's Word with you this morning as we look at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. So Matthew 6, uh, verses 5 through 13 is the Lord's Prayer. It's one of those passages of scripture that probably a lot of you are very familiar with and probably know the Lord's Prayer by heart. But I think it's one of those passages that's good for us to, to take some moments to really examine and see what the Lord is trying to teach us through it. Because I think there's really some important things he's teaching us about who our Heavenly Father is and how we relate to him. So before we get into it, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this day. Thank you again for the opportunity to open up your word and to just worship with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that you would help us to hear what you would have to say to us. Father, speak through me and help me to say what you would have me to say. And I pray, Father, that as we study the Lord's Prayer, that you would just open our eyes to see you in a new way and to see how you have blessed us in so many different ways with, with your love and with the encouragement that you give us and with the peace that you give us through uh, our, our relationship with you. So bless our time together this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to give a little bit of background information on the Lord's Prayer, it's said in the context of Matthew 6, wherein Jesus is speaking to his followers and warning them not to be like the hypocrites, the people who like to show off their religiosity to try to impress other people. The hypocrites are people who Jesus elsewhere refers to as whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they look nice and clean, but on the inside, they're just dead spiritually. For a hypocrite, the focus is always on me and how I look on the outside. And so we see this in the opening verses of today's passage. And uh, if you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to open it. If you don't, there's probably one in the seat, or you can follow along behind me as well. So Matthew 6, verses 5 through 7, Jesus says this, And when you pray, And here again we see that the focus is on me. It's trying to impress the people around me and assuming that God will hear me because of my pretty speech and many words. And the many words that Jesus is referring to there is probably a reference to the way that pagans prayed at that time. They would say the names of their gods or specific phrases over and over and over again in order to try to get the gods to grant their requests. It was really nothing more than a kind of a magic formula to try to get the gods to manipulate, to manipulate the gods to get them to do what they wanted. But Jesus goes on to say in verses 8 and 9, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. I think that it's really interesting that Jesus starts out by saying that your Father already knows what you need before you ask him. So when we come to him and pray, Prayer, we aren't informing him of anything that he doesn't already know. Jesus is really using this as a teachable moment as he reorients our whole way of thinking about God. It's not about trying to impress people or bend God's will to my own desire. It's about putting the focus back where it belongs on my heavenly Father. And so prayer is an opportunity that the Lord gives us to teach us who he is and how to rest in his will for our lives knowing that whatever he brings to pass is for our good and his glory. And Jesus is saying, and I think that this is really the important part, God already knows what you need. And so I'm going to show you how to pray so that your greatest needs are met. And through God meeting your needs, most importantly, he will be glorified. And so there are three points that I want to cover briefly today. It's the who, the what, and the how. Okay, so the first thing, the who, that Jesus knows we need to know is who God is. He is our heavenly father. And that's just how Jesus starts out his prayer in verse 9, our father in heaven. And in Jewish culture, the father was highly respected. He was the provider. He was the protector of the family. He was the authority figure. But there's also a sense of intimacy. In Judaism, God was a father who delighted in meeting the needs of his people. The Aramaic word that Jesus probably used was Abba, a word that conveys warmth and affectionate respect, but not irreverence. God is not our buddy, but he is our loving provider who deserves our absolute respect and obedience. And I just wonder what comes to your mind when you think of father. Maybe you had a great father who was always attentive, who you had a great relationship with. You could come to him at any time. He was the provider. Maybe... You did it. Maybe you didn't have such a great father that you don't really have much of a relationship with. But the beautiful thing about Scripture is that it shows us who our Heavenly Father really is. We don't have to wonder what he's like. In Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, for example, when he is uh, talking and relaying what Jesus said, he, he says this. Jesus says in verse 11 from Luke 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And I think from a 21st century Western perspective, that's kind of odd, right? Jesus is talking about food, and then he suddenly flips it, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit. How does that connect? Well, from a first century Jewish perspective, an Old Testament Jewish perspective, because the Old Testament was all that they had at that time, it would be really odd to have the Holy Spirit so freely given, because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was only given to a select few people. And so for Jesus to say, all you have to do is ask and god will god your heavenly father will give you himself he will give you his holy spirit and so it's really it was really better than anything that they could even imagine i think what jesus is saying here is that yeah of course your heavenly father and we'll see this later Your Heavenly Father is going to provide for your daily physical needs, but he's going to give you something even better, something that you can't even imagine. I think what he's saying here is that, I think C.S. Lewis put it so well when he talks about, we are happy with making mud pies at the seashore, and what God wants to provide for us is this beautiful, bountiful feast. And so our problem is not that we ask too little, it's, that we ex- it's not that we expect too little, it's that we expect too much from our Heavenly Father because He is the best Father that we can't even imagine. And so that's who we're praying to when we're praying to our Father in Heaven. And so when Jesus goes on to say He is in Heaven, He implies God's sovereign rule over everything. He is infinite and all-powerful, With unlimited resources and legions of angels ready to do his will. In Psalm 115, verse 3, we read, Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. And so here the focus is really on the separateness of God. God is the creator, everything else is creation. He is the one who spoke everything into existence. Everything else that exists came into existence because God spoke it into existence. And that is who we are praying to when we are praying to our Heavenly Father. There is nothing too big for him. There's nothing that's outside of his control. And so secondly, Jesus goes on to say in this passage what our greatest needs are, that God's name be kept holy and his will be done. I think we would all agree it's a good thing for God's name to be reverenced and for his will to be done, right? But do we see it as our greatest need? For example, when it comes down to it, I think our temptation is often to say that we need a better car, we need more money, we need a different job, we need a bigger house. Not that those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but those things ultimately are not going to satisfy us. They are not ultimately what is going to fulfill us and so jesus is saying here this is what you really need pray then like this our father in heaven hallowed be your name and when we pray that god's name be hallowed or kept holy it's a request for god's name to be treated with reverence the focus is on god again it's not on me At the time in history when Jesus was on earth, a person's name was much more than just a personal designation. It was tied to that person and his or or her attributes. It was who they were. So Jesus is teaching his disciples that their aspiration should be that God, who is holy, be seen and treated as holy throughout his creation. And this is ultimately what we want because when God is treated as holy, we live in the kind of world that we were created to live in. And eventually it will be that kind of a world right when God is treated as holy as as he should be in the new heavens and the new earth but I think it's something that we should aspire to now and so I would ask you brothers and sisters how might you make a change in your own life so that God's name is revered so that his name is kept holy might it make a difference in what we watch on TV or on the internet, or those things that we talk about, or the music that we listen to, or the work that we do? How can we make sure that God's name is revered, that his name is kept holy? And Jesus also goes on to say in verse 10, he he teaches us in this passage that God's kingdom, he asks for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. To pray for God's kingdom to come is to pray for the reign of Christ in the lives of believers individually and of the body of Christ as a whole, his church. To pray for his will to be done encompasses two things. First, it requires us to humbly submit to his will as he reveals it to us in his word. God has given us this book, right? He's given us the Bible to show us how to know him and live in a way that pleases him. And when we pray for his will to be done we are actively submitting to his leading and direction in our lives but we can't submit if we don't know right and so in Romans 12 verse 2 for example Paul says this he says do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect And so we need to make sure that daily we're spending time in God's word, that we're reading it and that we're studying it and that we're learning it so that we know how God wants us to live, so that we know what his will is for us and we're living in a way that pleases him. And then secondly, to pray for God's will to be done also means that we are willing to submit to his sovereign will in our lives. It's an act of surrender to him, really. It's knowing that for those who love God, he works all things together for good theologian J.I. Packer says it this way here more clearly than anywhere the purpose of prayer becomes plain not to make God do my will which is practicing magic but to bring my will into line with his and just as Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane my father if it be possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as I will but as you will Jesus was willing to surrender to his Father's will because he knew that was best. And ultimately, it was for our good because if Jesus hadn't gone to the cross, we would still be lost in our sin. And so in praying for God's will, we are submitting to his revealed will as he teaches us in his word and his sovereign will as he works out his plan for our lives. So points one and two, again, just to review, Jesus has taught us so far who God is, he's our heavenly father, and what our greatest needs are, that He be his name be revered and his will be done. And the third thing that Jesus teaches us to see as he is teaching us to pray is how God meets all our needs. The beauty of this is that God not only shows us what our true needs are, but promises to sustain us in the pursuit of them. He does this by providing pardoning and protecting God provides for us daily he pardons our sin and he protects us from evil in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 6 Jesus says give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil and so first of all our Heavenly Father provides for our daily bread The prayer is for our needs, not our greeds, as one commentator put it. Bread was a staple part of a person's diet at that time, and one's daily supply of bread was far from guaranteed. So praying for daily bread was an acknowledgment of our reliance on our Heavenly Father for everything we need for each new day, including even the ability to work. It's a recognition that God created us both body and soul and supplies our physical needs as well as our spiritual needs. In the first century at that time when Jesus lived on earth, there was a philosophy that was beginning to appear that was called Gnosticism. And it's kind of this dualistic thinking between spiritual good, what is spiritual is good, and what is physical or material is bad. And Jesus was saying he's not having any of that because God created us both body and soul, physically and spiritually. And so God is going to take care of both of those things. And ultimately, we are going to be reunited with our glorified body, right? After we die and go to heaven and the new heaven and the earth are here, we're going to be reunited once again with our body. And so our bodies are a good thing. And of course, God is going to take care of us in that way as well. And then in verse 12, Jesus goes on to say, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's both a vertical and a horizontal component to this request that Jesus is teaching us. We recognize that, first of all, that we owe God our full obedience, and when we disobey him, our sin is a debt. It's a debt that only he can pardon, and he has pardoned finally through the perfect obedience and sacrificial death of Jesus. But there's also the horizontal component right the horizontal component that has to do with the people around us and so when we pray for the Lord to forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors we admit that we don't have a right to ask for forgiveness from our own sins if we are withholding forgiveness from others the issue is that we don't often appreciate just how much grace God has already shown to us In Christ when he forgives our sins and when we do appreciate that it will be much easier to reflect God's grace to others so pardon from sin then restores our relationship not only with God but with others and I'm just wondering how you can apply this truth to your own life maybe you need to make sure that you are forgiven by God that you've come to know him as your heavenly father and put your faith in him and if you have Make sure that you understand how great that grace is that he gave to us and then how we can extend that to others and forgive the people around us. And then finally in verse 13, Jesus says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Perhaps the best way to understand this verse is to see what other scripture says, to let scripture interpret scripture. And we know from the first chapter of James that God does not tempt anyone to sin. And then later in Matthew, chapter 26, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, who are supposed to be praying with him, by the way, but are actually sleeping, Jesus tells them, watch and pray, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, as Christ's disciples, we want to be obedient to him but our human nature constantly struggles with sin. And Jesus reminds us to recognize our weakness and reorient our focus and reliance back on our Heavenly Father, who, as James tells us, is the giver of every good and perfect gift. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, We have no strength for living a holy life except so far as we obtain it from God. Whoever then implores the assistance of God to overcome temptations acknowledges that unless God deliver him, he will be constantly falling. And so we need to be sure that we are asking God for strength daily. And so just to review, three things that Jesus has taught us in his prayer. He has taught us who God is, and he has taught us what our greatest needs are to make sure that his name is reverenced and that his will is done, and then he shows us how he fulfills our needs in very practical ways by forgiving our sins, allowing us to extend forgiveness to others, and then by taking care of our daily needs as well, and by offering us protection from temptation when we go to him in prayer and seek his strength. And so a final point to wrap it all up is this, that God's glory is our greatest good. In other words, God's glory and my good are not two separate things. They are actually one and the same. When God's glory is our greatest good, we find the reason for which we were created. And we are free to rest in him. And we don't feel the need to try to manipulate God or manipulate people around us in order for us to... satisfied because we know that when God is glorified when he is truly glorified according to his will we find our greatest peace and our satisfaction John Piper puts it this way God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him and I think if we can understand that if we can wrap our minds around that it really changes everything about we what we seek in this life as our highest priority and how we see our relationship with God. It's not about trying to please a, an omnipotent ruler, although he is that, who is, who is just trying to keep us in line. It's about finding, what we were, finding out what we were created for because God's glory is our greatest good. And so as I close, I just want to emphasize that this prayer too is for us as followers of Christ. It's for us as disciples of Christ people who have been adopted into God's family through faith Jesus uses the possessive hour in his prayer to indicate that he is talking with his heavenly father and including his disciples or his followers with him the question is do you know Jesus as your Lord are you his disciple if not you can be and you can prayer this pray this prayer this Lord's prayer with the same confidence That Jesus did. So how do you become a disciple of Christ? It's very simple. It's by admitting that you are a sinner, that you have a sin debt to God, by coming before him, repenting of your sin, asking for forgiveness, and putting your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who lived the perfect life of obedience that we cannot, and died the penalty for sin that we deserve. In 1 Peter 2.24, we read this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so if you haven't already, I invite you to do so today to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to come to him, to ask him for, to forgive your sins and to trust in him and to follow him throughout your life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you again for this day and for the opportunity that you give us again to gather together and to open your word to study it. I pray that you would apply these truths to our heart, and I pray that as we go out from this place that you would be glorified in the lives that we live in the world around us, that we would be willing to forgive, but that we would also continue to seek your guidance and your help and your assistance as we go about our our lives father not trying to do it on our own but knowing that every good and perfect gift comes from you and so if there is ever anything that we are in need of we can go to you and that you will happily provide it for us father according to your will even so far as giving us yourself and thank so we thank you father for your son jesus we thank you for the holy spirit and it's in his name that we pray amen